Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, thank you, Pastor Allred. It's uh, indeed a, a privilege and honor to be with you this day, and I thank the session for their kind invitation uh, to come and share with you in the good things of the Lord. Uh, let me return the favor to Brian and his kind introduction by saying he was a first-rate student. That's, I'm sure, no surprise to any of you here, as you know his abilities in teaching and preaching. But just to dispel a rumor I heard going around, uh, the title of the sermon, The Genius of the Reformation, is, is not about Pastor Allred. It, it's, it's, he's, he's, he's a very able man, uh, but I had a little different idea there uh, in focus. So... Um, uh, I hope I don't disappoint you if you thought you were going to get a biography here, uh, but uh, <laughs> the genius of the Reformation, that's what we're going to be thinking about. Well, I'd like us to turn in God's Word to Psalm 15, Psalm 15, to read that together with you. I'll be reading, I didn't actually ask, I'm reading from the ESV, that's your version? Good, very good. Psalm 15 is a psalm of David. And this is the holy word of our God. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. God's holy word. May he himself add his blessing to this, the reading, and also the preaching of it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do wait upon you now in this hour. Lord, we bless your name for what has transpired previously, for how we have been able to come into your presence and sing your praise, to lift up our prayers and petitions before your throne, to hear that word of pardon so needy for guilty sinners like us. We thank you, Lord, that in Jesus we have everything. And so help us now as we come to your word to come to him in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and to find our lives either for the first time or once more to find our lives in Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the genius of the Reformation, or that which makes it what it is, and is its chief distinguishing feature, that's what I mean by genius, and thus we could say primary contribution to the Christian church is just this, that justification, that wonderful act of God whereby He declares sinners to be righteous in His sight, as we've already heard. 
that justification is not, as the Roman Catholic Church has taught and teaches, a process completed and enjoyed when we're finally sanctified, and they would say that final sanctification can occur here if you're a saint, this is what the Roman church teaches, or in purgatory if you're a regular person. In other words, you have to be sanctified through and through perfectly. And then and only then are you justified. Well, thanks be to God, those that we call the reformers got clarity, got insight that in fact justification is not a process of this sort. It's definitive so that all those who rest and trust in Christ alone enjoy right now and fully a perfect standing with God because Christ's righteousness is imputed to them, received by faith alone. Thus we say the genius of the Reformation was to grasp that here and now we have full access to God because we've been justified or declared righteous in His sight. And such a declaration is irreversible. If your faith is in Christ, as Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, you may slip many times on the deck of the ship of life, but you'll never fall overboard because Christ holds you by His Spirit. You are His. You are justified, adopted, sanctified, but today we're thinking particularly about that first one. Well, given these assertions then about the Reformation and its genius, you might wonder, why is Psalm 15, the text, the professor's a little confused, I think. Why not a more classic text? What, what we heard from, from Romans 3 or, or, or Galatians? Well, I think it's important, I think it's helpful and important to see that the truth of the gospel that was clearly grasped in the Reformation is not contained in just a few New Testament texts. Rather, what the Reformers came to see, they came to see with such clarity that justification, God declaring us righteous, is done here and now so that we have a perfect standing here and now. That that's a message that pervades the Bible. Not just found in certain New Testament books. And Luther himself, we've already heard something about him this morning, in those years before 1517 when he nailed the 95 Thesis to the door, before that he had taught not only in Romans and Galatians but in the Psalms and it had great influence on him. And this Psalm, along with others certainly, strikes notes quite fitting for our reflections on the Reformation. Psalm 15 pointedly puts for us this question in the first verse, which we could restate as this. Who can come into the presence of God? That's what this first verse is saying. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who can come into God's presence? That's what the verse is saying. And I'd call your attention in response to that question to the following three points. Who can come into the presence of the living God? First of all, the righteous. That's what the text points us to. 
The one who bears God's character can come into His presence. Those who are righteous. But secondly, and we've already seen it, rightly so, we've already anticipated it in the confession of sin. Secondly, after the fall, none of us are righteous. We sinned in and fell with Adam. And we're born in the sin into which he fell. And all of us, apart from God in Christ, throughout the whole course of our lives, bring forth sin, sin, sin. We're not righteous. But thirdly, we see. We see the gracious good news of the gospel. Thirdly, we see who can come into God's presence? One who bears God's character and who can bring us who are fallen back to God, which is to say Christ and those who enjoy His righteousness. Who can come into God's presence? The righteous, first of all. Secondly, none of us after the fall. And thirdly, Christ who brings us back to the Father. Well, we say, who can come into God's presence? And we see, first of all, that the one who bears God's character can come into His presence, which is to say, the righteous. This is what's described. Righteousness is what's described. Look carefully at the psalm in verses 2 to 5. It's those who possess such righteousness in answer to that first question, who can come into God's presence. And it's a righteousness that's both outward and inward. Outward righteousness... That is outwardly being blameless. That's certainly set forth here. Verse 2 speaks of the one who walks blamelessly and does what is right, manifested specifically in control of speech and action. Verses 3 and 4c. And who loves the good or the godly and hates the evil or the wicked, verses 4a and b and 5a and b. And this puts a particular spin on it because we live in an era, we live in a time in which it's assumed that if you love this, just this soft, general thing, and there's no hatred, but you can't love the good without hating the evil. I love my family and I hate that which would harm them. And so here we see this righteousness, a perfect righteousness. And even more searchingly, the one described in these verses 2 to 5 manifests inward righteousness. Look at verse 2c. He speaks the truth in his heart. If you understand what that's saying, that'll cut you to the core. That means that not only... Would you do nothing outwardly, no wrong words or deeds, but not even a lying thought? Not even, ever a lying thought. This points us, doesn't it, to a perfect righteousness such as Adam enjoyed before the fall. You say, when was mankind ever this way? when God made him in the Garden of Eden. Now don't say, well, I heard the pastor. Man was never this way. No, you didn't hear him. He was this way. He was made this way. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, God made man upright. Adam was holy and perfect in his sight. 
This describes him in the way he was made. And when all this is there, such a one as verse 5c says, look at that beautiful little statement there summarizing, such a one shall never be moved. Again, it makes us think of a number of, of other psalms. We think particularly of that description of the righteous, don't we? In Psalm 1, like trees planted by the waters shall not be moved. Standing firm, such righteous ones stand firm. Well, why does God require such inward and out, outward righteousness anyway? Well, when we think about the question, who can come to God's presence and we see it's the righteous, why is that the requirement? Well, it's simply a reflection of His perfect character. You say it's the law. Yes, but the law, you get this right? The law is just a reflection of His perfect character. That's who He is. He's the Holy One of Israel, as Isaiah says, who, as Habakkuk says, is of purer eyes than to look upon sin. And He made man in His image. And we've said that. Adam was made this way. Made to mirror God's character. Made to walk in righteousness. And it's only those who do. It's only those who walk in such righteousness that God admits into His blessed presence whom He permits to sojourn in the Lord's tent and to dwell on His holy hill. It's only those that God admits. And again, this shouldn't surprise us. Sovereigns always set the terms of admission into their presence. Remember, this is why Esther hesitated when challenged about going into Ahasuerus' presence. And she said, well, if he doesn't extend his scepter to me, I'm in trouble. Why? Well, you can just think it through. For one thing, if you rush into the king's presence and the king doesn't make it clear to the guards about that you're permitted there, they're going to jump you. I mean, you won't get as far as the guy got in the White House. Well, we'll just let that one go. But you, you, they're going to jump you. You hold out the scepter. And of course... You couldn't just decide to, to go see the president and say, well, I, I'm going to go right into the Oval Office. No, you have to be admitted by a sovereign into his presence. Where do we get this notion of God? I mean, people say things about God like, well, yeah, he's righteous and he'll let anybody in. And We don't do that. I mean, are you saying God is just a giant pushover? Well, many people want to define him that way because that's convenient for them. But that's not the way the Bible defines him. It's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible requires that we be righteous, beloved, to come into His presence. And would we really admire Him if He didn't? It would be like admiring a God who, who paid no heed to justice. We're concerned about people saying, well, I, I had somebody say, I'm not concerned about justice. God forbid your family were horribly murdered. You'd be concerned about justice. And you wouldn't respect a judge. you say, ha, 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 I'm not concerned about justice. Everybody goes free. You'd be saying, unfair! Is God any less than that? He's a righteous God and He demands righteousness. Only the righteous can dwell with God. This is the uniform testimony of this psalm and of all the Word of God. Well, this very truth that only the righteous can dwell with God 
becomes an enormous problem after the fall. This is our second point. <laughs> and you've heard enough. You've heard enough in what's been said here and what was said earlier in the service. You know that though man was made upright, they have sought out many schemes. What a way of putting it there in Ecclesiastes. Man is no longer upright. Man is born now, as we say in the sin to which Adam fell, man is born now. Sinful, though he was made upright. Given that man is no longer righteous due to Adam's sin and all of our actual sins. Catch this now. The requirement that man be righteous to approach God is bad news. It's bad news for modern and every other kind of man. That man must be righteous. Martin Luther recognized this. Martin Luther sensed his own lack of, of righteousness, of holiness. He joined the monastery. And he thought, here I'll become righteous. And he excelled them all when they would starve themselves and beat themselves and do all the kinds of things to deny themselves. He did it more than any of them did. And day in and day out, he tried to make himself righteous because he kept reading in Romans and in other places about the righteousness of God and that God requires such righteousness to come into his presence. He wasn't wrong about that. He was right. God does require such. And he labored and he labored. And if anybody could have done it, it's sort of like what Paul is saying in Philippians 3 when he says, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. If anybody could have done it by legalistic works, Paul could have done it. If anybody could have done it, Luther could have done it. Because he was trying harder than anybody else. You recognize, of course, that what we're calling bad news, what I've just said is bad news, that God requires righteousness, but we can't produce it now, that I'm speaking about the law of God. You might say the law. Yeah, verses 2 to 5 are one of many of the republications that we find throughout Scripture of God's righteous requirements, which is to say the law of God, this reflection of His holy, perfect character. The law itself is good. Don't mistake what I'm saying. The law is good, but for fallen sinful man, it brings bad news. The law shows me I'm a sinner. The law shows me I'm not righteous. So we were talking about this a little bit last night. So <laughs> there's really that sense when, when we hear God's righteous requirements as we do in verses 2 to 5 of this text, we can, we can say, it ain't me. It ain't me. I ain't no fortunate son. We're having a little discussion a little revival, Credence Clearwater that is. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. But find out. <laughs> that's what Luther was seeing. That's what I hope you see. That this text and what it requires is not something that you in the flesh can produce. It's not something you can do. This isn't another thing on the list, the to-do list. You know, you've got it, and they're good. Hey, you need them when you hunger. I have them, you know. So here's the to-do list for tomorrow. I don't know what's on it. You know, meet with Bob. 
there's a lot of people named that, so we'll just throw him on the list, huh? Meet with Bob, you know, clear, you know, answer emails. Third, establish a perfect righteousness. And as that guy on television says, how's that working for you? How's that trying to get a perfect righteousness working for you? It wasn't working for Luther. He was driving himself crazy and everybody around him. It's interesting because even Staupitz, his superior, they were all being driven crazy by Luther because and, and when Luther would look at them, they would say, you know, relax. And he's saying, relax. I don't have a perfect righteousness and you're worse than I am. I mean, we're all going to hell. I mean, and they're like, well, what are you going to do with this guy? Over here. But he was seeing the right. Thanks be to God that he saw that. Thanks be to God. So we say the law itself is good, but for fallen sinful man it brings bad news. And this is recognized in a variety of ways, even in the Old Testament, not the least evidence of such being the establishment of the sacrificial system at the time of the laws being given at Sinai. So when God establishes the law in that very clear way at Sinai, it had been there, but it's made very clear. He graciously at the same time He gives that law. Gives the whole sacrificial system. Why? Because Israel is going to see its sin as never before. And he's going to be pleased to teach them that though they deserve to die because of this sin, by the sacrifice of another, they can be forgiven. That's what he teaches them in the sacrificial system. Somebody said to me once, well, well, wasn't that, you know, sort of thinking they're making a great point uh, against the Bible. Well, wasn't that smelly and nasty and all around the temple, all those animals? I said, yeah, so was our sin. Yes. And that's why they had perfume wherever they could have it. The ointment. I mean, it's nice smelling stuff because it was nasty, right? You get it? Our sin is ugly. But he gave that whole system showing that though we deserve to die, you could come to the priest and your, your sins be, be confessed over the head of this, of this ram or this goat or this lamb, and, and, and that animal taken and killed, meaning you should be killed for your sin. You should die everlastingly. But God is pleased to accept the sacrifice of another so that it all gets connected up. When John the Baptist, seeing Jesus approach, cries out, and they get what he's saying because they have this sacrificial system. When he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's Jesus, the true Lamb, who will lay down his life for his people. Here's the bad news that the law shouts to us. You sinner are excluded from the presence of a holy God. And you might say, well, where in Psalm 15 is that? <laughs> okay, I hear what you're saying, stranger. Who can come into God's presence? Okay, and we read through the list, and, you know, it's kind of tight there and speaks the truth in his heart. Well, I'm trying to fudge that one a bit. Yeah. <laughs> where, where does it say we're excluded? Well, can anyone apart from God's grace fulfill the requirements set forth in this list, particularly that speaking the truth in his heart, I'll do you one better. Does even the grace of God 
that God gives us, that He gives us in sanctification, that He gives to actually cleanse us and to transform us and to renew us, does that enable us perfectly in this life to meet the requirements of this psalm? Do you see the problem? We say, we can't do this apart from the grace of God, but beloved, even with the grace of God as a believer, I cannot perfectly do what Psalm 15 requires. Can you? Can you? As a believer, can you do it? This is the, the, another genius here. This is the genius that Calvin shows. We've talked a bit about Luther. We've got to bring Calvin in. That Calvin shows when he treats this subject in his institutes. And it's confused people sometimes, but it's a brilliant treatment. What he does in the third book where the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is at issue. And when he talks about this, when he talks about the doctrine of justification... He first talks about the doctrine of sanctification. Oh, wait a minute. Reformed, I thought we, it's justification and then sanctification. Well, listen, he knew what he was doing. He talks about sanctification first because Rome was saying, the Roman Catholic Church was saying, we know why you people want to have a reformation because you just want to sin a lot. We know. We are on to you. And so Calvin starts by saying, no, God gives to all of his own a transforming grace that changes them that renews them inwardly, and that manifests itself inwardly and outwardly. So he answers that, that charge of what's called antinomianism, that we are against the law, we hate the law, we just want to live lawless, godless lives. And he says, no. No, all true Christians, God works in them to sanctify them, to renew them, to regenerate them, to sanctify them. But then he goes on to show but be they as sanctified as they may, be they as sanctified in this life as they could become, even if they were perfected in this life, they still had all the life before that that they weren't perfected. In other words, if you weren't born perfect and live that conceived in sin, no, if you were not conceived in righteousness and lived in perfection all the days of your life, your life is forfeit because James says, James says if you have but one sin, you're guilty of the whole because the law is an integral whole. Can we understand this? People act like, well, I, I don't get that. I had somebody say to me, I don't understand how one sin would break the whole law. Well, it, it's sort of like my kid come uh, the other day, you know, and I'm saying, oh, this glass is broken. He's saying, no, 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 the glass isn't broken. I mean, it, you know, you can still drink from it. Look, it has a crack in it. That's broken. Because it's not shattered on the floor in a billion pieces doesn't mean it's not broken. The glass is broken. It does not maintain its integrity. And, you know, when Brian comes over, I'm going to say, Here, honored guest, you know, cut your lip on this glass, please. No, no, the glass is broken. But we've done a lot more than one sin, haven't we? Let's just then be honest. We've done a lot more than any one sin. But you see what Calvin said was, be as sanctified as you will as a believer. That still does not give you that perfect standing that you need to come before a holy God. That does not give you that perfect standing that admits you into the presence of a holy God. That comes only in justification. So he says, we don't deny sanctification, but we preach the need for justification because sanctification doesn't do here below what only justification does, which is to give you now 
When? Now. If you trust in Christ, come to him. Come to him, yes. As that great hymn says, don't of fitness fondly dream. The only fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. That's the gospel call. If you tarry till you're better. Well, let me clean myself up. Let me... Really? Really? You don't know how bad your sin is, do you? If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Come to Jesus for the first time or again. You say, well, I've come to him. I've come to him, but I've been really struggling with sin. I've been, come to him. He called you. He's willing that you should come. He's waiting for you to come. He's wanting you to come. Come to him and receive again in a fresh of that acceptance, full and free, that we have in him. Accepted in the beloved. That's what justification means. That we have a perfect acceptance in him. And so we say, God's always required a perfect righteousness to come into His presence. If we don't understand this, we don't understand anything properly that the Bible teaches. Now that's a pretty bold, that may be offensive to some people. If we don't understand this, that God requires a perfect holiness and righteousness to come into His presence, we don't really understand the Bible at all. Before the fall... God required it and Adam possessed it by the goodness and kindness of God. And God continues to require it after the fall. Which is why he concludes all fallen unregenerate man is under his wrath and curse because they're covenant lawbreakers. Yes, you see, here's the thing. God's character doesn't change at the fall. Which raises the problem that Paul confronts in Romans. What John Murray calls the great religious problem. Given that, man is, given that God is holy and that man is sinful, how can God continue to be just and justify the ungodly? How can a just God declare ungodly sinners to be just? And if your answer is, well, that's no problem, well, then you're not seeing the issue. It is a problem, and it's a problem that can only be answered and solved by Jesus Christ coming and living for us and dying for us. Jesus didn't come down here below just because he was bored or he thought it would be nice to give Hallmark something to do in December. He came down below to save his people from their sins. And that's what he did. The reason that the justification of the ungodly is a problem, you see, friends, and I repeat it, is just because God remains just not denying His essential nature to save us. He doesn't deny who He essentially is. He can't do that. It says, in fact, in the Word, if, if we're faithless and deny Him, He will not deny Himself. That's what that means. God's character hasn't changed. It can't change. I am the Lord thy God, Malachi 3.6. I change not. And of course, that's done in a good context. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Meaning, I'm not changeable like you and get tired of you and throw you off. Aren't you thankful that God is faithful in that way? He will never, no, never, no, never forsake. I've heard that song somewhere before. So we say God's character hasn't changed, but man's character has in the fall. And because it has and because we're now sinners, 
We stand under God's just wrath and condemnation. And so we see then the need for one who bears God's character to come to the third point. Who can come into the presence of God? The righteous. But we're in big trouble after the fall because none of us are. But thanks be to God, one came who fulfilled all righteousness. And it's the greatest privilege of my life to say these two words to you. Because this is the best news in the world. I mean, you know... Somebody said, you like to preach? Well, I mean, I have a son particularly who loves to give good news. Actually, he loves to give good or bad news. He just likes to give the news, if you get the, the idea. But to give good news in a sin-sick, weary world, what better news can I give than to say Jesus Christ came and lived and died for you? Yeah, but you don't know, for you. But pastor, I'm really struggling, for you. You're going to listen to the devil? Or are you going to listen to Jesus? Well, you're speaking for Jesus? Yes, I am. Believe it. Yes, I, you're sure about that? Yes, I'm sure about that. And I'm sure if you disbelieve it, that's the devil, the flesh, and the world. The unholy trinity. So we say, in the gospel we see how that we who are sinners and thus are barred from the blessed presence of a holy God have one who comes and does for us what Adam failed to do and who undoes what he did. The gospel is that which solves the problem of how a holy God can show mercy to sinners. The gospel that the reformers came to understand more fully than had the medieval church. You see, we've said, we've spoken about the law. And verses 2 to 5 are a beautiful setting forth of the character of God in the law. But the same God who gave that law, Jesus who is the great law giver is also the great law keeper. He comes and keeps the law that he gave. Well, I mean, that's too good to be true almost. I, yeah, it, it is. But the very best thing in the world which is too good to be true, is true. It's true. Don't leave here saying it's too good to be true because if you never move from that, you'll go to hell. It is true. Yeah, but what kind of love? Oh, yes. My, one of my daughters had the privilege of ministering the summer before last uh, at the Boardwalk Chapel, which is a, uh, a ministry of the Presbyterian New Jersey Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, in Wildwood, New Jersey. It's a seaside resort. About two million come there in the summer, and it's just an opportunity. They have the they share the gospel. They go out, and she's you know she's been in the church her whole life. She loves the Lord. She's a beautiful girl. She was sharing it with somebody, but it just you know it hits you with such freshness when you talk. And she was saying. This one girl, they had kind of gotten aside because she seemed particularly interested. So there were several of them talking to a group, and she took this girl aside. And she said, and, and Jesus Christ, you know, loved you and came to die for your sins. And this girl was like, he died for my sins? And she began crying. She was like, he loved, and, and my daughter is like, I mean, you've heard this. And she says, no, no, I haven't. I mean, I'm in my... Uh, 
it was quite an overwhelming experience for my daughter. And, you know, you're just like, he's dying for you and loves you. You know. And this girl is like, he, he died for me. He did that for me. He loved, I mean, and it was impacting her heart and her life. And, you know, and then my daughter was like, wow, this gospel is amazing. She knew it was, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I mean we're, we're pretty unbelieving, aren't we? I mean, we, and we forget, there's, there's always that sort of forgetting from the first love especially. You know, that, this is true, again, we see this, you know. Older married people, it's, 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 it's always very encouraging when older married people say, you know, younger people, well, you, you know, here they are, they're all happy. Yeah, 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 and they're going to, they're going to, yeah, yeah. Well, you'll find out soon. It's like, hey, knock that off, okay? We don't need your bitterness. No, this is experience. Oh, no, a lot of it's bitterness. You can talk to me afterwards if you want to. I've seen a lot of people. It's supposed to get better. Like the difference between new wine and old wine. New wine is very effervescent, exciting, has that freshness, but old wine is, oh my goodness, mature. It has a, it has a whole delightfulness to it. This is the way our relationship is supposed to be. Well, we say... In Psalm 15 here, we see that these verses, though they don't describe us, really do describe Jesus, don't they? I remember as a young Christian reading through this and starting to see things in my heart and life that I just hadn't seen. Reading through something like Psalm 15 and other types of scripture and thinking, if I'm honest, I, I don't think I am all of these things. No, but Jesus is. That's why it's so important that that you have a translation, really it is, that, that captures the masculine singular here. Because it, it's, it's very clear in these things. It talks about the one who swears to its own hurt. It's masculine singular. It doesn't mean just anyone. It's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus. And outwardly, he is the man who swore to his own hurt and did not change. Who does that describe more than Jesus? He covenanted with the Father eternally in the covenant of redemption and then he came below to fulfill the covenant of works that we did not fulfill and to open up and to bring us into the covenant of grace thanks be to God he is the one who kept covenant with his father to redeem us as people and when you think about speaking the truth in the heart he never entertained anything but truth because he was the truth incarnate I am the way the truth he said the life. Thus Jesus by His person and work achieved the righteousness which these verses demand but which Adam and we fail to produce. He won righteousness for us, we say, by paying for our sins with His own blood and by keeping the law that Adam failed to keep. Both are required for our justification. What's called often the passive obedience, which is Jesus going to the cross, and you heard about that and paying for our sins, but also that active obedience, His keeping the whole law for us. And a lot of times people will say to me, I don't get this, why do we need, if Jesus paid for all of our sins, aren't they taken care of? What does He need then to keep the law for us? What do we need the active obedience for? Again, this corresponds to our experience. Think about it this way. If you say to your kid, you know, okay, we're going go to the, we're gonna go out at 6 o'clock, uh, I want your room cleaned up by 5 o'clock. So you come, a couple minutes to five, the room's worse than it ever looked. I'm sure nobody's ever experienced anything like that. Well, I have. 
what do you do? Well, there's some sort of discipline. In other words, you have to pay for not cleaning up your room, whatever that may be. And what do you say? Because I had the kid try this. I've had kids try this. Well, look, if, if you're disciplining me for this, then I don't have to do it now because it's taken care of. No, I turn and I say, now clean up the room. But see, Jesus comes and he does it all. He not only cleans up our mess, but he positively obeys that whole law. He does it all for us because He loves us. And the Heidelberg Catechism puts it beautifully. It says, in answer to the question, how are you righteous before God? Question 60, only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, that is, though my conscience accuse me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I never had nor committed any sin, and myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept such with a, with a believing heart such benefit with a believing heart. This was the great discovery of Luther, beloved. The righteousness that God requires that we cannot produce, He gives freely as a gift. God does continue to require a perfect righteousness, but He gives it freely as a gift received by faith alone. What do I have to do to have this righteousness? Trust in Christ. Yeah, but what? Trust in Christ. But that trust in Christ alone. Here we see the genius of the Reformation. Luther said and spoke about this, Christ taking our sin and giving us His righteousness as the glorious exchange. And when he came to understand that the righteousness that Christ requires of us, he gives to us as a gift, having taken our sins in the glorious exchange. Luther said when he realized that, the gates of paradise opened and I did enter in. Because he was free. All the struggling, all the striving of I've got to make myself righteous before a holy God. He recognized that God did it. God works in us. The genius of the Reformation, you see, is to recognize that our justification is not suspended upon our sanctification. It's not as Rome has it that we're justified only when fully sanctified either because we're saints or because purgatory has done its work. No, though we've not yet been fully sanctified or glorified, and you need to hear what I'm about to say, because you don't usually believe this, quite likely. Though we've not yet been fully sanctified or glorified, we are as justified, we are as righteous before a holy God as we ever will be. You say, no, 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 in heaven we're going to be thoroughly... You need to, you need to think rightly about this, beloved. Your standing 
the righteousness that you have that admits you into the presence of God because it is that of Christ is as much as it ever will be. Yes, you will personally become thoroughly holy. But you right now have a perfect standing if your hope is in Christ and Christ alone. Right now. You are as justified, you are as righteous in Him as you ever will be. Or to put it this way, if all that Christ has done for you doesn't achieve for you this righteousness that you need and that is given as a gift, if all that Jesus did doesn't achieve that, what can you do? If Jesus didn't do it for if Jesus is not my Savior from first to last, I'm going to hell. Well, we shouldn't have invited this guy. I mean, he's not really very good. No, I'm not. But I have a good Savior. I have a great Savior, and so do you. So do you. Our response to all of this is to live lives of humble gratitude for the reality that if you trust in Christ alone, you enjoy right now a righteousness that comes not because we can fulfill the righteous demands of Psalm 15, but because Christ has and we enjoy His righteousness as a gift imputed to us and received by faith alone. Thank God for such gospel insight that the Reformers received. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there's so much to say here as we think of these glorious truths, but we praise you, we bless your name for the vast and immeasurable riches that we have in Jesus in whom we glory and in whom we rest. Help everyone here to rest in none other but Jesus, who is our righteousness and who presents us now spotless before your throne. Thanks be to God in Jesus' name.